listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. I'm Arlene Bonham for Alan Carter today. We're going to start off by looking at all these crimes that need answer. It's a strange kind of a day because we're concerned about crime and we don't have answers. And in a few of these, we may not get any answers. Today, we are expecting an update by the RCMP. They're going to make an announcement later today, actually within an hour or two, on the autopsies for the bodies that they say they are confident are the homicide suspects. However, they needed to be identified. And today we're going to get an idea on how these two young men died. It's important because... Did they plan on escaping? Was this a murder, double murder, suicide? Did they have this all part of the plan? However, now that they're deceased, we know the case is closed in that area. Although they say they're going to keep looking for answers, but we might not get the answers when it comes to motive. Also today, some of the families of the suspects are speaking out, and the sister of one of the two young lovers that were first killed and they found the bodies is saying that the father of one of these suspects is not taking responsibility. However, that father, the one he is the father of Briar Schmangelski, He says he apologizes. In the aftermath of the manhunt, there's a shared sense of relief among Canadians. But the father of Briar Schmigelski, one of the two teenage murder suspects, told 60 Minutes Australia he's relieved for a different reason. I've had to be concerned that a bunch of cops are going to come out and shoot them. You have no idea how, how heartbreaking that is. Alan Schmigelski says at least he knows where Breyer is, a reference to the RCMP's belief that his son and his son's friend, Cam McLeod, were found dead. I wanted my son to be someone amazing. I wanted my son to have a future. Schmigelski has had his own struggles with mental illness and homelessness. He says he's sorry for what happened, although he won't fully accept that the young men were killers until he gets proof. He says he bought his son one of these replica weapons last Christmas called an airsoft gun. He dismisses any suggestion the gift might have planted a seed. After TV did, after YouTube did, after video games did, you can't watch Bugs Bunny and not see Elmer Fudd with a shotgun. Too early to tell what the real sort of triggers or antecedents were here. The two were charged to a second-degree murder in the death of university lecturer Leonard Dick of B.C. They were suspected in the deaths of Australian Lucas Fowler and his American girlfriend, China Deese. On Facebook, Kennedy Deese noted her sister, China, was in the first generation of my immediate family to go to college, earning her degree in psychology because she loved to support people and wanted them to know they are not alone. To Alan Schmigelski, she says, your sorrow is for yourself, adding the proper public response would have been a genuine apology, but we still forgive you and have mercy. The investigation continues, including results of autopsies being conducted on the bodies of Schmigelski and McLeod. With a lack of answers and a lack of closure, you're going to see all kinds of sort of transmutations of this story take shape online. There's still no answer to the most confounding question. Why? Ross Lord, 
Global News. We also have other other crimes that we're asking about why, kind of similar. Jeffrey Epstein, probably, if, if we're really honest, Jeffrey Epstein, who committed suicide over the weekend in a New York jail, was probably the most high-profile prisoner there is in the world, all watching this case post-Me Too. It's about power and money, a prince, the royal family's name in the headlines after that dump of documents on Friday. President Clinton being on his plane, President Trump, a former friend, and there were others. So Epstein's suicide, it is kind of the same. You know, when when somebody is dead, a certain part of the case, of course, against them, is over. But this is going to continue. And tying in with our suspected killers in B.C., there is an autopsy, and it has been performed already, and we are going to find out. And perhaps, you know, as Ross just mentioned, this is something that's going to be in Canada with the B.C. murders. We're seeing it projected online. Well, look at what's happened in Jeffrey Epstein. I mean, there were bots ready moments after that blockbuster story broke. And then we had the president of the United States retweet unsubstantiated claims that the Clintons were responsible. This is the world that we live in. So if Epstein's autopsy comes out and we have some idea how he died, maybe we'll get some more answers because this could just be as much as anybody's putting their partisan hat on saying, oh, I think it's this, I think it's that. It very well could be a prison system that is overworked and that has holes in it. And we've seen it before, and it may not go in the partisan way people want. However, this is just even move the story into a bigger, bigger sphere. Here in Toronto, more shootings, and we want questions why. And then we have the police chief coming out saying, you know, that the police and the lenient bail system, it would help if it wasn't so easy and letting these people back out in the streets. Not everyone agrees. Michael Lacey is president of the Criminal Lawyers Association. He joined our morning show here saying that's not the issue. Frankly, it's irresponsible of the chief to be making claims like this. There's no question that gun violence in the city is a problem. There's no question that guns on the street being used by by criminals is insidious. And we have to work together as a community, obviously, to protect uh, the other members of the community. But to claim, as the chief did, that somehow judges are just releasing people who are arrested on serious gun-related offenses without regard to the community, without regard to the relevant factors that, that guide bail, is completely irresponsible of him. The false assumption that the chief is making and, and pointing to those numbers is, first of all, that each one of those cases involves a serious case of gun violence where someone poses a risk to the community. And I know you're going to say, well, it's a gun-related offense. No, no, I'm I'm listening to you. There's lawful gun owners, for example, who've been charged with careless storage of a firearm or careless transportation of a firearm. People who are not engaged in gun-related activity, are not engaged in gang-related activity, are not engaged in using guns for violence. The other false assumption that's being made by the chief is that in each and every case where the police make an arrest for a gun-related offense, that somehow that equates with the guilt in relation to the offense. And one of the 
um, major media outlets in Toronto on the weekend, for example, ran a story about a number of people who'd been arrested on gun-related offences, who had records, who had been released. One of the four people that they had pointed to, the charges were ultimately withdrawn in the courts because there was no evidence to support the charge in the first place. So you have to be careful when you take a figure like that, the chief points to, to say, well, look, you've got effectively what he's trying to say is you've got 300 people out there who pose a danger to the community who are using guns to commit violent offenses. And it's just not an accurate statistic. And there we have Michael Lacey. He's president of the Criminal Lawyers Association on the morning show as he reacts to the police chief's claim that it is a lenient bail system. For Alan Carter, I'm Arlene Bynum. We're going to take some time now to talk about two... uh, international stories that are affecting Canada. First of all, it really is uh, the focus of the world as we look to what is happening in Hong Kong. Joining us is Redmond Shannon, who is the Europe correspondent for Global News. Hi, Redmond. Thank you for being here. Hi, Arlene. All right. We have some more indication these protests aren't stopping today, that the flights have been canceled. Yeah, that's right. So this is the the first time in this uh, 10-week series of protests in Hong Kong that it has, I suppose, spread internationally because uh, the Hong Kong International Airport is closed as we speak. And that affects flights uh, right around the world, including from Canada, because it is a huge international hub for many airlines, most notably, of course, Cathay Pacific, the, the Hong Kong Airlines. So it is affecting people outside of Hong Kong now and there is a ramp up in tensions notably over the weekend as well between police and protesters and uh, no one's quite sure where this is going to end. No they're not and you know the impetus has just started to grow and grow and there's a feeling that these protesters you know as we watch we wonder how it ends and now these protesters we're hearing reporting feel that they can't turn around that this is where they are yes and it it seems as though when protesters uh push for push a little bit harder um police push harder again and it's it seems that that will only end in potentially in violence and we saw that yesterday as each side sort of tries to outdo each other and there were allegations of uh, sort of dirty tricks from the police allegedly yesterday with police mm-hmm. alleged to have dressed like protesters and incite violence um, according to protesters that and there is footage going around that appears to show people uh, taken yesterday who dressed as protesters coming out of the police lines and mingling with protesters and there were some pretty nasty incidents. One woman shot by a tear gas canister in the eye. It's not known whether her eye will, uh, she will be able to keep her eye. So obviously very badly injured. And other quite violent scenes, uh, tear gas being shot inside one metro, one subway station in Hong Kong. So there isn't a feeling that it is going to die down. Although mm-hmm. in the airport tonight, Uh, It is feared uh, by many protesters that the police may try to come and forcibly remove people and some people have been leaving the airport, uh, but we don't know yet um, how that is going to end. All intentions are that the airport should open tomorrow morning, but 
we just can't be sure how the protesters going to uh, what they're going to decide to do. All right. And also some reporting that, you know, you've got the police reaction. As you say, we've got reports of police brutality. And then we also have the news that some employers are warning that there's going to be disciplinary consequences for employees. So we see the big squeeze happening on these protesters. We do, because Cathay Pacific is a huge employer in Hong Kong. The airline base in Hong Kong airport, obviously a huge proportion of its business is going to and from mainland China. And it has told its employees that they will potentially be fired if they are involved in protests. As simple as that. It's not uh, nuanced. They said it could result in... uh, in, in people being fired and reportedly one pilot already has been let go because he was involved in protests last month. So you can understand from a business point of view mm-hmm. why Cathay Pacific is bowing to the pressure because if it, if it is uh, told it can't fly to mainland China potentially, mm-hmm. well, that's, that could be the end of its business, uh, a huge portion of its business. So it, uh, it has major consequences and China is a huge, huge economy, and it holds so many cards, even though Hong Kong is guaranteed many uh, freedoms in terms of justice mm-hmm. and how it how it governs itself. It really is uh, under the, the watch and under the control of China in so many ways. Raymond, you know, we saw with Libya and all these, and I'll call them modern protests, we've seen how modern technology, social media, has aided this, but on the other hand, it can be used against them. How are we seeing the Internet and technology in this particular protest? Well, one notable uh, incident over the last few weeks that you might have seen on pictures is lasers being pointed at police. And that is apparently because Mm -hmm. protesters fear that facial recognition technology Mm. is being used to identify them by police. Whether that's true or not, the fear is there. We do know that that technology exists. It's being tried out by police forces here in the UK, in Canada too, in Toronto. Uh, this is something that is perhaps quite a step up from just taking someone's picture because you can track someone, uh, you know, electronically, biometrically, if you have a scan of their face. So these sort of uh, the, the the ramp up in technology is being used on the pro- by the protesters, obviously, for, for them to keep track of what's going on, but also by authorities, too. So it's not just a a physical uh, standoff on the streets of Hong Kong, but uh, a technological standoff in many ways, too. You know, when we watch these protests, uh, how the world reacts, how countries react and how they come to protesters' aid or not can have a big impact on what kind of gains are made. We know some of the protesters. I think I saw some signs saying support us to the United States. And for countries like the United States and Canada, look, you know, we already have a big problem with the tentacles of China. This just throws something else in it for our politicians, doesn't it? You know, we usually uh, support those who want freedom and democracy. And as you just mentioned, even with Cathay Pacific, when money is involved, we're, we're hit almost these days with a new reality. Well, yes, of course. And when it comes to China, again, there's, there's so many dilemmas. Uh, and that was exposed with uh, and is being exposed with the Huawei issue between Canada and China and the US and Canada. Basically, Canada is having to decide whether mm-hmm. or not to 
please the please Washington or please Beijing and being stuck in the middle with the very tricky situation with two Canadians uh, in custody in China and the same goes here that um, many countries don't want to speak out even though they might want to espouse democratic values and uh, uh, you know t- to keep the peace uh, in many countries are sort of almost saying nothing because the consequences of upsetting China uh, are huge economically for so many countries around the world so we, we see that even from from the united states where uh, donald trump's uh, mm-hmm. hasn't said a whole lot about this other than that hong kong and china can sort it out and one would expect america the united states being uh, somewhere that always wants to say it espouses freedom and democracy well it comes down to uh, the almighty dollar as well and the balancing those two things is is uh, always something that uh, that we see when when these sort of things happen and in China. Yeah, and it's even harder. I mean, even with Saudi Arabia and now with China, we have the rule of law, we have our relationship with the United States. It's very, very complicated. There was a poll out and it said, it was done by Nanos, that 40% of Canadians surveyed believe the Trudeau government has done a very poor or poor job of managing this dispute with China and that uh, Canadians are hardening their views of China. That certainly has to put pressure on the politicians. Well, it does, but I suppose the question is, what can you Canada got do? Because uh, the the Catch Twenty Two that uh, Ottawa is in now is, it can't. Ottawa said, and the Trudeau government has said, it, the, the judicial system in Canada is separate to the legislative system. Mm-hmm. Of course, as soon as the SNC-Lavalin scandal broke, the Chinese had a good old chuckle at what was going on there or what was allegedly Rule of law. going yes. on there. Mm-hmm. And uh, But having said for so long that uh, Canada saying, you know, we can't interfere, we can't let this Huawei executive go because it's uh, that is what, you know, the extradition laws are in the books. Uh, it's very, very difficult to turn around and find a way to 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 free this this woman until the judicial process plays out. So it is such a tricky thing. Uh, I think uh, a darned if you do and darned if you don't is is appropriate. I certainly wouldn't want to be in the shoes of uh, decision makers in Ottawa um, trying to figure out how to uh, find. Um, a way out of this that uh, pleases everyone. It's true, and you know, there's pressure, and we're heading into the the election campaign, so that's what opposition parties do. Um, they put the pressure on the government, saying things could have been done better. However, as you say, I mean, realistically, even if there's a change in government, they're going to be set with the same dilemma, aren't they, Redmond? I mean, what do you do? Never mind adding to all this. We've got Canadians on on death row there. I mean, there is a lot at stake. Some are saying we need a more cohesive, strong policy on China. But what would that look like? Well, that's the that's a good question, and uh, Andrew Shear has to, I suppose, be very careful about what he says in the lead up to the election because mm-hmm. in a few months' time he may be Maybe. inheriting, as mm-hmm. as you say, those those problems, and he can't commit to something that is impossible to do. So, obviously. There are many areas in which the federal government can be criticized in what they may or may not have done. But uh, it is one thing being in opposition, another thing being in power. And uh, it's, it's, it's a very tricky thing when you have such a behemoth on the world stage as China and two behemoths, China mm-hmm. and the USA, mm-hmm. that you're trying to please. And that goes for issues like this, like the protests in Hong mm-hmm. Kong, technological issues and so, and so many more.
Final question. You know, there is a sense, and I know I think it was discussed in the survey because 90 percent said they're hardening their views of China in this country, that we've been on ignore that this all happened. And those tentacles, as we say, got into places in Canada without Canadians and the Canadian government realizing well, that's 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 potentially true. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't know if they realize or not, um, but it's a. Uh, um, it's not easy, as the song says. <laughs> yeah, and it's a gl- it's a glib thing to say, but it often is said that uh, we are where we are, and they have to deal with the situation now. What they knew beforehand, I suppose, we probably won't know. We may we may not know for many a year on what the government knew and when they knew and what they should have done in hindsight, uh, potentially. We, we might know more of that if there is a change of government to come the fall, but um, it's, it's, it's a tricky one. And uh, Beijing is certainly not going to lie down when it comes to uh, its financial interests. Um, no, and if they and know we're, the we're heading into an election, they know there's a vulnerability there, too. So we might even be prepared that they make a move before the election. Well, that's true, and uh, you could argue that it would be um, naive of anyone to think mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, Another country wouldn't take advantage of that. There is always a vulnerability around election time, and we have to we have to realize what what uh, what, what other countries or foes, or well, for want of a better term, a uh, perhaps a competitor on the mm-hmm. global mark on the global uh, scale might might do or might want to do. But it's a, it's it's a very tricky thing to balance, and uh, I think um, a lot of tough decisions might have to be made after the election come the fall because. Uh, it's, uh, it's, a, it's everybody wants to put their best face on between now and uh, and polling oh, day. Yeah. All right. Red, Redmond Shannon, thank you for your reporting today. We appreciate it. Thanks, Connie. Thanks, Arlene. Bye. Right. And welcome back. I'm Arlene Bynan, happy to be filling in for Alan Carter today. And we're going to get another installment in a wonderful series that has been airing on Global. And it is on Canadian opioids. Laura Hensley is Global News National Online Journalist. And today she joins us live in the studio. Laura, thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me. All right. You know, opioids certainly have been dealing a blow to us in so many ways. But we're learning through your series just how complicated it is. And it is really complicated. And a lot of it has to do about attitude toward the pharmaceutical companies. We've been weighing in on that. And you have reached out to medical schools and reached out to universities and and looked at how they're teaching the interaction. What do you mean by that? Certainly. So, you know, when students enter medical school, they're relatively ignorant of medical culture Mm -hmm. and they're expected to come out as health authorities and know how to practice medicine. So the way that they're taught is really, really important. And through my research and talking to different experts, pharmaceutical companies pour millions of dollars into medical education through the form of research funding, grants, uh, strong relationships with faculty. They'll pay faculty to sit on advisory boards. And this can then affect how students perceive industry interaction. And if they see pharma interaction as a normal part of medicine, that can ultimately affect the way that they 
you know, practice medicine when they're working as doctors. And you know, and our focus is on, do they pay enough attention to the downside of some of these drugs? Are they buying a sell here? And how, let's just say it, how accountable are they for their part in this? What did you find? Well, one really interesting case I want to speak about is uh, at the University of Toronto. So Mm -hmm. one doctor uh, who went to school, med school there, he realized after he was out of med school, that his course on pain management was funded by pharmaceutical companies, mm-hmm. one including mm-hmm. Purdue Pharma, we know, the makers of OxyContin. So the information he was presented in this course, you know, potentially was biased and had not really accurate health information. And it described opioids and OxyContin as being, you know, a weaker drug and not addictive. And we now know that that is not true. So UFT no longer has this format of the pain course. Mm-hmm. But the doctor just, you know, really wanted to highlight the fact that this is something that thousands of med students went through and that can shape the way that they you know view opioids and then when they go out and practice in the field if you're taught something in med school how do you know any different and it's about you know look at our focus on the sources of news these days and we want to know if something's sponsored or whatever we want to know that the person their skin in the game there and here we're discovering that this is happening on an entry level as you say is it just that one case there with uft or or others or is there an example of a more you know hands-off approach well, things have changed at U of T since this situation, but it's not a unique situation. Another doctor I spoke to who went to med school at the University of Manitoba, pharmaceutical companies were giving students free textbooks, and these textbooks were published yeah. by them. So, wow. you know, even if they have authors who are not necessarily employees of the mm-hmm. pharmaceutical company, there is that issue of, is there bias in this material? Is there a conflict of interest? So I reached out to every single med school across Canada and I asked for their policies on, you know, conflict of interest, disclosure, transparency around funding. And each med school has a policy. They have a variety of policies, but they all sort of advocate for transparency. You know, that's one thing to have policies in place, but are they enough to mitigate that bias and conflict of interest? I'm not sure. And we know, I mean, this is big money. Uh, This is paying for a lot of things. We know that we've um, found out a lot more about the sponsorship of these pharmaceutical companies on day trips and uh, perks for doctors. And here we have it right from this level. Are you, did you get a sense that the the Band-Aid has been pulled off here and we can see inside this wound? Well, it's interesting. I spoke to one med student who recently graduated and she said that things have changed because the opioid crisis has made Mm -hmm. doctors, new doctors especially, very weary of pharmaceutical interactions. So she said because of what we're seeing with the lawsuits Mm -hmm. against Purdue, for example, doctors going into the medical field now are really concerned about the information they're getting from pharma reps and they're distancing themselves. So I think med schools are going to eventually have to think about whether or not they want to take any of this money from pharmaceutical companies and what sort of message that sends if it aligns with what future doctors think and how they want to practice medicine. You know, tone and feel is so important in just about everything, everything we cover. And I remember years ago focusing on this as a journalist and it was a bit tough. Like, you know, I would in an interview, you would say to someone from the Medical Association, well, what happened? Because we never really got an idea of the sell of this benign drug 
and the reality of it. No one really at this point has been accountable for what essentially was a false representation of the dangers of this drug. Definitely. And it's so deep, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's drug companies who were aware that there was people abusing these drugs though, who were Mm -hmm. aware of the dangers who intentionally misled and targeted doctors through pharmaceutical reps, you know, calling on doctor's offices, calling on pharmacies, funding pain management courses at institutions. Mm -hmm. It goes very deep, but I think the key message is the same. These drugs are safe. They're not very addictive Mm -hmm. and they're effective for lots of types of pain. And those messages were hammered home so successfully that we see now what is the opioid crisis. All right. Snapshot of your series and just your thoughts that that analysis that you've just given that they were this is what they were sold. They really were safe. What has that been replaced with? That's a fantastic question. And I think that's a really valid point Mm -hmm. because I'm not sure there has been a replacement. You know, many people I've heard from through this series have reached out to me and said, doctors are now afraid to give opioids, but I was on opioid for cancer, chronic cancer pain. Mm -hmm. You know, now I'm no longer getting it or now doctors are not tapering properly and there's a fear. So I think the issue is that doctors need to learn how to treat chronic pain, need to learn how to help their patients manage pain in a way that's not necessarily relying on opioids. I don't know if there is one fix for that. And to throw it in here too, we've also seen a complete transformation on our idea of how much pain we should suffer with. Definitely. We feel we should be pain-free, even for the little things in life. I was talking to somebody who'd taken some opioids, and they said, you know, his father had this and that, and, that, and his father lived with it. But in our minds, and that's that's part of it, pain-free. Definitely. I think the attitudes towards pain, the second mm. you have some, we don't want to deal with discomfort. No. We go, I live in this modern world. What do I take? Exactly. Even things like, you know, headaches after your wisdom teeth removal. I was speaking to someone who Mm -hmm. said that they were prescribed an opioid after wisdom teeth Mm -hmm. removal. You do need medication at certain points in life. There is no question to that, but do you need very, very strong painkillers for small things? I, I, I don't think so. I don't think so either. And I think that's one of the things that will emerge. Thank you for joining us. Laura Hensley, Global News, national online journalist, part of a series on Canadian opioids. A great conversation. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. I'm Arlene Bynum for Alan Carter. We're going to go to the phones here and take your thoughts on beef and meat. What the heck's going on? We know that there has been a push to perhaps get it out of our minds, that we should be using less beef. And we're seeing evidence of it in so many ways. We're talking about a tax on beef. There's a discussion, a tax on beef. And now we're really seeing this move forward. This is in the UK. However, there is a, a cafe at a university in the UK, and they are banning beef from their university cafes they say it's to tackle the climate crisis but now we are starting to see this thing really move forward university of london college is also going to get rid of plastics the same way it is usually something that is left up 
to the consumer. But now there is a, can we say it, is there a war on meat? Is it justified? You know, when our food guide came out, there was this whole uh, idea push on tying in what we eat to climate, tying in what we eat to the latest health. And that's always been very, very controversial. And in some ways, although I thought it was a bit pushy, I at least thought that the Canada Food Guide was being tied in to some science because it hasn't before. I remember doing a big story on this, I think, for the National Post many years ago on how what were there nine recommended servings of carbohydrates at one point so you can see how the canada food guide or other food guides can get can get you know political and it can be get pressured from lobbying groups well now we kind of have the opposite so banning the sale of beef in campus food outlets tackling the climate emergency how do you feel about that 416-870-6400 star 640 on sale is this our decision or should places where we get our food make this decision for us you know we've been through this before when it comes to sugar when it comes to what's good for us but here we have a university and look hey I, i mean i can see this happening at hospitals because any of us who've ever been in a hospital or watched our loved ones in a hospital and sometimes you're like what the heck is going on here do they not even follow any kind of relationship between what is good for a patient and what they should eat. I mean, somebody may have been in there for heart disease or whatever, or diabetes, and there's a lot of carbohydrates in things. Are there? When you're in a hospital, if they if they offer me one more glass of juice when I get there, even if I'm visiting somebody, I think I'll run screaming into the hallway. But here they have um, banning at these university cafes beef products. They're not going to be available in their shops or their cafes, and this is going to start in September. Just another sign of perhaps a war on beef. And Tom in Newmarket will start us off. Hi, Tom. The funny thing is, remember the study that came out uh, about the healthiest, basically the healthiest people in North America were the Mennonites and Amish, and they had the least amount of allergens and allergies. They had really good blood pressure, good all that sort of stuff, good cholesterol versus bad. Meanwhile, they were exceedingly high in beef consumption and potatoes. I know, but it did, they didn't use a lot of pesticides and stuff, too, may I say. so. Well, you could always buy organic beef if you really wanted to. Yeah, you could. Right? Yeah, you could. But what do you think this, you know, it, it, there's a lot of science connected to a lot of this stuff. But isn't it our personal decision? Here we have another example, Tom, of this being pushed upon people. Well, the problem is for me is my grandparents were farmers. They were beef farmers mm-hmm. and went into ag layers. And my great-grandpa lived to his 90s, my grandpa lived to his 90s, and during tough times, they would eat a dozen eggs each a day, which is totally bad for you. It is. Right? In theory. If, but how can you say that for them having such a healthy lifestyle? I think it's more processed foods and the crap or the quick food that we eat mm-hmm. versus if we got back to basics, got back to meat, potatoes, vegetables, then I don't think even it would even remotely be an argument. And there's a lot of reporting on what is in some of these Beyond Beef products. I mean, a lot of those are processed. They're not they're not terrible for you if you're trying to avoid beef. On the other hand, they are not a panacea to this problem. Tom, thank you for your call. 
Here we go. And can we take it? It's one thing for sugar. I, you know, let's face it. I'll, I'll be honest. I mean, some of these sugar products are not even just the sugar that we're baking pies with. It's, you know, glucose, fructose, all those things, which easily is so transferred very easily in your body, can raise your blood sugar. And there's a lot of connection there between disease. This has got to do with climate. They're starting to try to change the way we eat. Richard in Ancaster. Hi, Richard. Hi, Arlene. Um, I read uh, Howard Lyman's book, The Mad Cowboy, Mm -hmm. uh, shortly after Oprah got sued by him Mm -hmm. uh, or for having him on her show. And there's a big distinction between American beef and Canadian beef in terms of hormones. And uh, like your last caller said, the uh, a lot of the um, medicines and the vaccines that go into beef. By the way, Mennonite people are also very uh, uh, minimal in terms of autism. So people can talk about science, but that's a statistical reality. And um, I think for a school to be pushing uh, Mm -hmm. no beef on its students, that's kind of like just uh, programming, basically, societal uh, experimentation. I mean, there's there's no reason and there's no uh, hard fact to the health issues involved. There are some economic reasons, but in terms of, of uh, global warming, the, the, the biggest influence with global warming is and always will be solar dynamics. It has nothing to do with someone barbecuing or raising beef or beef cows passing wind. Yeah, I know, but it takes a lot of space, Richard, to raise those things. We have a very large country. Apparently. Apparently we do. the people of Alberta are crowding themselves. <laughs> All right, Richard, thank you for your call. I will say one thing, though, that the amount, you know, if you're not going to eat this, and vegetables are seen, of course, as the great answer to this, and they are, and they're wonderful things. But lettuce, lettuce uses a lot of water. And there's certain lettuce that is not very nutritionally dense. George in Toronto. Hey, George. Arlene. Beef is the healthiest food you can eat. It's full of conjugated linoleic acid, which is the intramuscular fat. Mm -hmm. It's a cancer fighter. Okay? Well, come on, George. It's not, I mean, there's a lot of other evidence, you know. Things are are not black and white. There are some great things in beef, on the other hand. There are some things that can be avoided in beef as well. Iron, which is the only iron your body can actually mm-hmm. absorb. Okay? Popeye, oh, you can eat all that green stuff. You absorb nothing. With beef, you absorb the iron. It's the best food you can absolutely feed, eat. It's the carbohydrates is what's killing us. Well, that's one aspect of it, George. On the other hand, there's lots of studies about some of the additives in beef, and it is, it's not that simple. But here's, let me ask you, this is done in the interest of being environmentally friendly. Is it too pushy, according to you? Let's, t- let's talk about the environment. How no, I, yeah, is it too pushy healthy? for them to do this, George? Yes, after stupidity. How, <laughs> how do we keep our soil healthy? Okay? You want veggies? How do you grow vegetables so they're healthy? Yeah, let well, me know. Manure on the soil. Yeah, they we got a lot of stuff animal. on them. All we them. need animal agriculture for the manure to, to uh, add organic matter to the uh, soil. 
either that or you you spread uh, chemical nitrogen on the soil to keep your tomatoes growing. One of the others. George, thank you for your call. And I was in PEI this summer, and, you know, years and years and years and years and years ago, they used to put the lobsters, when they were no big deal, they put them in the field for fertilizer, and now they're a luxury. Andrew in Toronto. Hi, Andrew. Hey, thanks for taking my call, Arlene. Um, so your question at the top, is it too pushy? I, I think it, it is, mm-hmm. especially if it's a publicly funded school. Absolutely. If it's publicly funded, they should have no business uh, creating bans on campus when it comes to certain uh, food products that are, are legal. Um, what I said to your producer is, this reminds me a little bit about the craze with uh, diet drinks a, a while ago. Exactly. Beyond meat exactly. craze that people are saying, look over here, there's the dangerous sugar. But the jury's still out on things like aspartame and sucralose and how bad it is for you. you got it. And now I'm hearing from some of the nutritionists saying, raising their hand and waving and saying, wait a minute here, these Beyond Meat products are ultra-processed. They're not good for you. If you have them once in a well, while... Well, they're not horrible for you, but they're not not—they're not this great green uh, solution to all these problems. Everything's got a plus and a minus here. Yeah, and that's and that's the point, Arlene. A lot of people are seeing this as that's going to replace the meat in their diet, and they're going to have it daily. And the, this nutritionist warned against that. Says, I know. I interviewed. Whole, I interviewed that nutritionist. You're Did absolutely you? right, Andrew. And yeah. I predict that. In the next few years, we're going to have a lot of studies going, wait a minute, we've got to add more variety into our diet. Andrew, thank you for your call. Tracy and Aurelia. Hi, Tracy. Hi, Arlene. Love your show. Hey, thanks for joining me here. Uh, what do you think about this? Do you want schools making decisions right down to beef here? Well, here's my take on this. We just spent just over $7,500, so $7,500 on a meal plan for our son at university. And when we went to tour the university, one of the first things he mm-hmm. wanted to see was what restaurant, like what food is being provided. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he's an athlete, needs to eat well, needs mm-hmm. to eat a balanced meal, um, and he's a big beef eater. And if, if they're going to eliminate that, then I personally think that they should be uh, getting, I'd like to know if there's student input on this, if there's varsity athlete input on this, because um, they're the end user. And they're, they're going to have to adjust their, their pricing then, because if you're taking beef out of the mix, uh, that's a big cost differentiation. Everybody knows that from their grocery bill. Tracy and Aurelia, thank you, Tracy. There you go. If you're listening to us, universities, I wouldn't do it. It was not popular here this afternoon. I'm Arlene Bynum, in this week for Alan Carter. Thank you for joining me.